At the Passover festival, it was Pilate's regular practice to release a prisoner to the people, anyone for whom they asked. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to follow his custom. He answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead, a man who was in prison for insurrection and for murder. Pilate spoke to the crowd again, then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. And Pilate asked them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away inside the palace and they called together the whole battalion. They cloaked Jesus in a purple cloak and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. And they began saluting him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and they knelt down in mock homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. As they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And they laid the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said this, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children.
through others also who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place which is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.
Heavenly Creator, we find the story of this day unbearable. It is bad enough that Jesus of Nazareth should have been put to death on a cross, but we realize that this was not so much the act of especially wicked people as the awful result of ordinary human attitudes. To our horror, we see where all human spite finds its target, and we admit our share in this guilt of humanity. Jesus made himself open to others in love, and we know how often we fail to do that. Help us, O oh God, to know that we were there. This day's story is unbearable indeed to all except yourself. At this we marvel that your love is great enough to take the relentless hurt of all human wrongs. Holy One, shock and save us with the terrible goodness of this Friday. Drive us deep into our longing for your kingdom until we seek it first, yet not first for ourselves, but for the hungry and the sick and the poor of your children, for prisoners of conscience around the world, for those we have wasted with our racism and sexism and ageism and nationalism and religionism, for those around this Mother Earth and in this city who this Friday know far more of bigotry and terror than of goodness that through seeking first your kingdom, for them as well as for ourselves, we may experience the peace of your presence. O God, whose broken heart we perceive on Calvary, in the strength of your compassionate love, give us the courage to acknowledge both our inner pains and the pains of the world, and to surround them all with the transforming power of your love, as we remember your promise that nothing in life or death will be able to separate us from your love. Amen.
the soldiers cast lots to divide Jesus' clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there with Jesus kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise.
the time their 12-year-old got lost in Jerusalem and they finally found him in the temple, Mary said, Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And as things turned out, it was a shadow of things to come. It's not hard to imagine her sorrowing again when Jesus left a good, steady job in Nazareth to risk his neck wandering around all over creation to proclaim whatever it was he thought he was proclaiming. Part of her sorrow was presumably that she loved him too much for himself instead of for the wild and holy business he thought he'd been called to. Another part must have been that like just about everybody else who was closest to him in Nazareth, she never really understood what he thought he was doing and may well have been one of the ones who, when he went back home once, decided he must be off his rocker. He is beside himself, they said, and tried to lock him up for his own good. Maybe some of the things he said to her didn't sound as bad in Aramaic as they do in English. But even so, she can't have been too happy about the time she told him the wine was running out at the wedding in Cana, and he said, woman, what have you to do with me? Or the time they came and told him his mother was waiting outside for him, and he said, who is my mother? Adding that whoever did the will of his father who was in heaven, that was who his mother was. For all the sentimentalizing that their relationship has come in for since, there's no place in the Gospels where he speaks some special loving word or does some special loving thing for the woman who gave him birth. You get the idea that he felt he couldn't belong truly to anybody unless he somehow belonged equally to everybody. They were all his mothers and brothers and sisters. And there's no place in the record where he offers her anything more than he offered everyone else. No place, that is, except at the very end, when cross-eyed with pain, he looked down from where they'd nailed him and said something just for her. Even here, he didn't call her his mother, just woman again. And he didn't say goodbye to her or anything like that. But it's, is, it, but it's as if here, at last, he finally spoke to the awful need he must have always sensed in her. Behold your son, he said, indicating the disciple who was standing beside her. And then to the disciple, behold your mother. It was his going away present to her, somebody to be the son to her that he had had no way of being himself, what with the world to save, the death to die. He would be present in that disciple he seemed to be saying for her to live for and to live for her. Beyond that, he would be present in generation after generation for her to mother, the Mater Dolorosa, who seeks him always and sorrowing everywhere she goes.
It is an honor and a privilege for me to be with you on this day. I recognize that this is not an easy time to be in worship, but on this day and this hour, you represent the heart of the worshiping community, the heart of those who gather around the world on this day to pay attention to the cross, to the one whose life is being taken. Somehow, I, I suspect you know that the only place to be on Good Friday is at the foot of the cross, gathered there with believers and skeptics alike, wondering, hoping, wishing that there might be another way. And yet here you are, stopping from your business or your school, from your coming and your going, your buying and your selling to worship with others to pay attention again to the story of Christ's death. And what an amazing and unusual tale it is. Is there a stranger affirmation of God's presence among us? How can this story of an execution, really of a murder, also be a story that relates the tale of God's good news for all of us. How can it be that this ugly and sordid afternoon can somehow reveal the goodness of God? And the details of it seem outlandish and, and bizarre. It appears that everything in the Jesus movement has gone wrong, horribly, terribly wrong. This one came preaching love and forgiveness, grace and hope, and now his life, his life is ending. But Luke's gospel wants us to see. Luke's gospel wants us to see beyond the tragedy, be, beyond the horror of the crucifixion and the pain, to the startling revelation that the gospel is somehow being proclaimed, that God's love is there in the middle of the ugliness, not absent from it, but in the midst of it and at that very place. The gospel, as the gospel was being read this afternoon, you may have noticed that the violence was barely mentioned. There were no real details about the crucifixion. In fact, Luke assumes that his readers already know what a crucifixion was like. You may know that in antiquity, in the days of, of Jesus, Crucifixions were quite common, sometimes a, a hundred a day or more. There was a day once in Palestine's history when there were a thousand crucified by the Romans to make sure that the point was understood. Break our law, Rome would say. Break our rule, Rome would say, and we will break you. And the crucifixion was a very efficient way of communicating that message. Luke spends no real time on the violence and the ugliness and the descriptions of what was happening. It was already known. Instead, Luke moves away from the details of crucifixion and instead focuses on the work of the gospel. Yes, on the work of the gospel in the midst of this story. As strange as it may seem, the gospel does not hit a detour when violence and hatred stand in its way. Even though Jesus is being executed, the gospel is not derailed by this action. Human violence never slows down the work of God and God's love and grace in the world. 
no matter what is happening, even in a violent week like this one, God's love, God's forgiveness can still be found and seen. Remember what Luke said. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals. Then Jesus said, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Do you hear that? In the middle of this scene, in the middle of the nails and the blood and the rest, Jesus speaks only words of forgiveness. Forgive them, for they know not. And the word they is a little bit ambiguous there, though, isn't it? Is Jesus referring to the Romans who are crucifying him, to the religious leaders like me who are standing off to the side conspiring to make sure this is completed and finished? Or is he speaking of us, of ones who would later come also in need of forgiveness? I think Luke's intention there is both, both those who are gathered in that scene and those of us who gather 2,000 years later. Words of forgiveness are being spoken to remind us of the goodness of God's love for all. Luke wants us to hear the gospel message even, even in this horrific moment. This one being killed is the one who taught us to love our enemies. This one being executed is the one who taught us to forgive one another. This one's life is being given in recognition that God's love is stronger than violence. God's love is stronger than hatred. Line your armies up, Luke might say. Line them all up, end to end, and there's not enough weaponry in all the world to stand against the simple love of God. Perhaps you recall seeing Mel Gibson's film several years ago, The Passion of the Christ. I, I went to see it by myself, notebook in hand with a pen, took notes throughout the film to, in order to write a critique and a review that would be published later. My critique was rather harsh. My review was quite negative. It seemed as though the camera lens just, just enjoyed too much the torture, the beatings, the murder. It, it lingered too long, too long. Weeks later, though, when the movie came out on, on DVD, I was at a meeting at the church, went late into the night. It's a weeknight. When I arrived home, I found my wife watching the film. The credits, the closing credits were just beginning to scroll across the screen as I walked into the family room where she was on the couch watching the end of the movie. I could hear her softly weeping. I went and sat down by her. I took her hand. Are you okay, I asked. She took a deep breath, and she said, I, I just can't imagine what it would have been like to have been Mary. To see your son, your boy, your, your baby, beaten, scourged, humiliated. What mother, she asked, what mother could ever bear that pain? Her words reminded me that I had seen the film only for its violence. 
She watched it through the eyes of a mother. And she witnessed the broken heart of God. Of a God who came to love us. To save us from ourselves. There's a hard truth here. If we focus on this gospel story, the one of mercy and grace, we'll find that it is not an easy way to live. It involves risk. If you're going to follow this one to the cross, there is a risk not only of losing your life, but of finding your heart is broken. See, I, I believe Jesus' death was not ultimately caused by the spear in his side, the nails in his hands or his feet. I think his dying began when he was abandoned by his friends, betrayed, denied. Jesus died not so much from the wounds as from a broken heart. If we choose to follow Christ in the same way, we take the risk that our hearts may also be broken. But, but people of God, hear this, this word from a theologian named Leonard Sweet. He writes, the only hearts that never break are those that beat behind closed doors. You want to keep your heart safe? You want to keep yourself from failure and, and brokenheartedness? You want to avoid heartache and sadness? It's simple, really. Never give yourself to another in love. Never choose to serve the world out of grace and forgiveness and hope. If you want to avoid the pain of a broken heart, wrap your heart in concrete. Keep your heart to yourself. Don't love, don't care. Don't offer yourself in any way. But be warned, though, to live like this is truly what it means to become an alien. For to guard your heart, to keep it closed, is to be alienated from the world. The mystery of Jesus Christ is found in the idea that he was a human being fully alive. And in that aliveness, we saw the reflection of God. Jesus came and gave himself away in love to the world. He shared every emotion and aspect of human life with us. According to the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus was even tempted like us. He ate and drank with people he never should have been around, at least not good folks. He lived, he laughed, he cried, he wept. He was angry. He loved. He hoped. And finally, he gave his life. He became fully human when he experienced the heartache and the suffering that every one of us endures. And so we place a cross before us, not just on this day, but in every moment of worship, because it is a reminder to us of love come down. It is a reminder that God died of a broken heart while looking for us. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last.
When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. He then rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and went away. Sisters and brothers, please know this is not the end of the story. This is not the end. Amen. 